So um, to uh, to our next guest, um, another another story um, which which hinges on a moment um, and what a, well what a historic kind of moment this one is. And it's interesting the the parallels between Owen's book um, and Ryan's book. The character in Owen's book, Michael, writes about gangsters. He goes and immerses himself um, in that world, and that's something that um, our next guest knows all about. On the 29th of April, four police officers were 1992. Four police officers were cleared um, of the beating of a taxi driver called Rodney King um, and within hours Los Angeles burst into flames. You're all right? Everybody's just kind of moving. All right, we're good, we're good. Um, Los Angeles burst into flames. Officially, the LA riots resulted in just 53 deaths and 2,000 injuries. Um, all involved is the unofficial story uh, of what really happened next. It is six interlinked novellas told through uh, 17 first-person narratives, mainly Latino gang members. It covers 144 hours of life and death. I have to say, mostly death. Um, sorry. Um, it starts incredibly violently and ends incredibly violently, but what's just What's, what makes it more than kind of violence, more than that sort of porn, is the relationships between the people in the books, the alternative kinds of families that people have, the incredible passion, the loyalty that they have for one another, and the way that they make, um, the way that they make a home for themselves. Um, so please welcome to get us all involved, Ryan Gattis. Damien gave you some of the facts, but I think I should just give you the rest. At 3.15 p.m. on April 29, 1992, a jury acquitted Los Angeles Police Department officers Theodore Briseño and Timothy Wind, as well as Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, of excessive force used to subdue civilian Rodney King. The jury failed to reveal, uh, excuse me, to reach a verdict on the same charge against Officer Lawrence Powell. At roughly 5 p.m., riots began. They lasted six days, finally ending on Monday, May 4th, after 10,904 arrests had been made. Over 2,383 people had been injured. 11,113 fires had burned. And more than $1 billion worth of property damage was sustained. In addition, 60 deaths were attributed to rioting, but this number fails to account for murder victims who died outside active rioting sites during those six days of curfews and little to no emergency assistance. As LAPD Chief Daryl Gates himself said on the first night, quote, there are going to be situations where people are going to be without assistance. That's just the facts of life. There are not enough of us to be everywhere. It is possible and even likely that a number of victims not designated as riot related were actually the targets of a sinister combination of opportunity and circumstance. And this is about some of them. This is Ernesto Vera's story, April 29th, 1992, at 8.14 p.m. I'm in Linwood, South Central, somewhere off Atlantic and Olanda, putting tinfoil over trays of uneaten beans at some little kid's birthday party when I get told to go home early and probably not come back to work tomorrow. Maybe not for a week, even. My boss is worried what's happening up the 110 will come down here. He doesn't say trouble or riots or nothing. He just says that thing north of here. But he means where people are burning stuff and breaking out storefronts and getting beat down. I think about arguing because I need the money, but it wouldn't get me anywhere, so I don't waste my breath. 
I pack the beans away in the truck's fridge, I grab my coat, and I leave. Earlier in the afternoon when we got there, me and Termite, that's this guy I work with, we saw smoke. Four black towers going up like burning oil wells in Kuwait. Maybe not that big, but big. The birthday kid's half-drunk father sees us notice them as we're setting up tables, and he said it was because the cops that beat Rodney King aren't going to jail for it, and how did we feel about it? <laughs> you know we weren't happy, but we don't tell our boss's client that. Besides, it was a raw deal and all, but what did it have to do with us? It was blowing up somewhere else here. We shut up and do our jobs. I've been working the Taco Salunico truck going on three years. Whatever you got, I'll sling. Al pastor, asada, no problem. We do some nice cabeza too, if the mood hits you. Otherwise, there's lengua, pollo, whatever. You know, something for everybody. Usually we park over by our stand on Atlantic and Rosecrans, but sometimes we do birthday parties, anniversaries, anything really. I'm always happy to be done sooner if I can. I say bye to Termite, tell him not to show up next time without washing his hands good, and head out. If I walk fast, it's 20 minutes home. 15 if I take the boardwalk through the houses. It's not a boardwalk like Atlantic City or nothing like that. It's just a thin concrete alley between houses that serves as a walkway between the main street and the neighborhood. That's our shortcut. As my sister would say, fool's been running from the cops on it since forever. Go down, and it takes you straight to Atlantic. Go up, and it leads into the houses, street after street. So that's where I go when I get there. Up. Most people's porch lights are off. Backyard lights, too. Nobody's out. No familiar sounds. No Art LeBeau oldies music playing. No people fixing cars. When I'm passing houses, I only hear TVs on. And all the anchors are talking about is looting and fire and Rodney King and black people and anger. And that's cool. Whatever. Because I'm focused on something else. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being cold. Or nothing like that. I'm just taking care of what I need to take care of. You grow up in the same neighborhood as me. One with a gun store that sells single bullets for 25 cents to anybody with bad thoughts and a quarter. Then you might end up the same way. Not jaded or pissed or anything, just focused. And right now, I'm counting months till I get out. Two should do it. That's when I'll have money saved up to get some wheels again. Nothing fancy, just something that gets me to work and back without having to walk these streets. See, I've been cooking someone else's recipes forever, but I'm not trying to stay that way. When I get my own car, I'm driving to downtown, and I'm begging for an apprenticeship in the kitchen at R23, and that's this crazy sushi spot smack in the middle of a district that used to make the majority of toys in the world. But now the warehouses are all empty, and the toy stuff is up to China. I heard about it through Termite because he loves Japanese, too. He took me up there last week, and I dropped 38 pinche bucks on a meal just for myself, but it was worth it because of what those Japanese chefs did. <laughs> Stuff I never even dreamed of before. Spinach salad with eel. Tuna seared up so good with a blowtorch that it's cooked on the outside and all buttery and raw in the middle. But what really shook me was this thing called a California roll. Outside it's rice pressed into these little orange fish eggs. Inside it's a green circle of seaweed around crab, cucumber, and avocado. 
And it was that last ingredient that messed me up bad. Man, you don't understand. I'll do anything to learn from these chefs. I'll wash dishes, sweep floors, clean bathrooms. I'll stay late every night. I don't care. I just want to be near good Japanese food because in the time it took me to order that roll just for its name, to stare at it and decide I didn't want it because I'm sick of avocado, only for termite to call me out. And by then I just had to shrug and take a bite. But when it hit my tongue, something sparked inside me. My whole brain just lit up and I saw possibilities where I'd never seen any before. All because some chefs took something I was so bored with, something I see every day, and turned it into something else. Cut, scoop, mash enough avocados and you'll know. You'll get an ache in your bones quick. The kind that only comes from your hands memorizing movements by doing them over and over till you do it in your dreams sometimes. Make guacamole every day but Sunday for four years? See if you don't get sick of those slimy green suckers, too. <laughs> Something smacks the fence by my head, and I jump back with my hands up and ready. I laugh when I see it's just a fat orange cat because, damn, that got my heart going. I keep moving, though. Linwood's no place to be caught standing still, not if you're smart. Downtown is different. It's a better world up there, at least it could be for me, and there's so many things I want to know. So many questions I want to ask those chefs, like, how does place affect food anyway? I may not know much, but I'm pretty sure they don't have avocados in Japan. Our roots in this city are in Mexican food, because California used to be Mexico. California's even got a little Baja beard that still is Mexico, even though the land north of it is something else now. Like me, kind of. My parents are from Mexico. I was born there. I was carried to L.A. My little sister and brother were born here because of them. We're Americans now. See, this is what my walks home are for, kicking questions around in my head, dreaming, thinking. I get lost in it sometimes. As I'm turning the corner onto my street, I'm back to wondering what the hell a Japanese chef was thinking before inventing the California roll, and my mind's ticking over how even avocado can become something new and beautiful when put in different circumstances, and that's when a car with a grumbling engine comes up behind me. I don't think much of it. Not really. I move to the side, but it breaks next to me, so I move all the way over, right? Like, no problem. He'll just go by when he sees I'm not involved. No cholo uniform, no tattoos, nothing. I'm clean. But the car keeps up with my pace, inching forward. And when the driver's side window rolls down, Motown-style fast piano pours out. <laughs> Around here, everybody knows KRLA. 11, 10 a.m. on the radio dial. People love their oldies around here. The opening bit of Run, Run, Run by the Supremes is going. I recognize the sax and the piano. Hey, the driver says to me over the music. You know that homeboy, Lo Mosco? <laughs> the second I hear my little brother's street name in this stranger's mouth, I start booking it back the way I came. With every step, it feels like my stomach's trying to claw its way out of my body. It knows this is some serious fucking trouble. I hear the driver laugh as he throws the car into reverse and slams on the gas. The car passes me easy. It barrels to a stop, and that's when two guys get out of the front and one jumps out of the bed in the back. Three guys, all dressed up in black. My adrenaline is all the way up now. <laughs> 
I must be more alert than I've ever been in my life. And I know if I make it out of this, I need to remember as much as possible. So I turn my head and look while I'm running and try to memorize everything. It's a Ford, this car, dark blue. I think it's a Ranchero. It has a taillight out, left side. I can't make the plate number because I'm turning my head as I take the corner back onto the boardwalk and I'm breaking between houses, trying to bust out onto the next street, hop a fence and disappear into somebody's yard. But they're on me too fast. All three of them. They haven't worked 10 hours over a grill serving tacos to a bunch of damn kids and drunks. They're not tired. They're strong. I hear them coming up behind me as blood thumps up in my ears and I know I'm as good as caught, man. I get one cold second to gulp air and brace myself before they swoop in, kick me off my feet, and smash me in the jaw with something hard as I fall. After that, shit goes black for I don't know how long. I've been hit in the mouth before, but never like that. I come to as they're dragging me back to the car and it feels like my face is going to fall apart in two pieces. Around the ringing in my ears, I hear my boot heels slide grinding over the asphalt, and I figure I couldn't have been out more than a few seconds. Don't do this. I hear myself say the words. It surprises me how calm they are, considering my heart is going a million beats per minute. Please. I didn't do anything to you. I have money, whatever you want. They respond, these three, but not with words. Rough hands jerk me up to my feet, out of the boardwalk, and into the back alley with garages on both sides, but they're just setting me up. Quick, weak punches hit me in the kidneys, my stomach, my ribs too. I get it from all angles. They don't feel hard, but they steal my breath away. And at first, I don't understand. But then I see the blood and I stare at it on my shirt. And as I'm wondering why I didn't feel the stabs, a bat hits me. I see a flash of black a second before it lands and flinch away. The heavy part only gets me in the shoulder, but I go from being upright and looking at my shirt to flat on my back and staring at the night sky. Damn. Yeah, one of them screams, screams in my face. Yeah, motherfucker. I crumple up into a ball, my jaw feeling like somebody's frying it up in a pan. I bring my hands up and protect my face, but it doesn't help. The back comes down again and again. I catch one in the neck and my whole body goes numb. A different voice says, tie that shit off while he's flat like that. I can't hardly breathe. Another voice, maybe it's the first voice, joins in. Yeah, do it if you so big, Joker. One's named Joker. I need to remember that, I think. This is important information, Joker. The word sticks in my brain and I turn it over. I don't know any jokers except for comic books and it doesn't make any kind of sense why they're after me and not my brother if he did some stupid shit again. Please, I say when my breath comes back as if a plea worked on these monsters in their whole lives. But they're too busy yanking my ankles away from me. I'm so numb I can't even tell which one beneath me. My legs just get tight. There it is, one of them says. As I open my eyes, I think, there what is? All around, I see a neighborhood I recognize for a second. I think I'm safe when I hear them walk away and I see the brake lights of their car turn the garages around me red and relief sinks into me. They're leaving, I think. They're leaving. That's when I see a little boy, maybe 12 years old, hiding in the boardwalk. His face goes red in the brake lights and I see, yeah, he's looking at me. His eyes are all big though, his look 
messes with me so much that I follow his gaze down my body to my feet and I almost throw up when I see both my ankles tied to the back of the car with heavy wire. I pull hard, but the wire doesn't loosen. It just cuts into my skin. I kick out with all the strength I got, but nothing happens, nothing shifts. I struggle to get my fingers down to it to push it off somehow, but then the car's engine goes. And I get smashed flat and dragged, the speed sending my skull skidding over the asphalt. Air rushes over me and every bit of skin on my back feels like it's going up in flames when the car smacks its brakes hard. Momentum throws me forward. 10 feet, 20. I must bounce because I go airborne before something hard and cold like metal smashes me in the face. And this time, I feel my cheek break. I actually feel it give from the inside. The way it's crack echoes in my ears, the bone giving and blood gushing onto my tongue. I turn my head, open my mouth, and let it go. When I hear it hit the street, when it doesn't stop dripping, I know it's over. I know I'm done. Maybe I had a chance before, but not now. A voice from the car, I don't know which, shouts, Grab that wire up, fool. Make sure that motherfucker's dead. Door opens, but I don't hear it close. I hear footsteps coming close, and there's a shape looming over me, checking to see if I'm breathing. I actually think I held my breath for the entire time that you were doing that. Ah, okay, we can all exhale. Um, I did say this, it started with an act of um, horrendous violence and uh, it does not end well for, for that character, no. um, for, for Ernesto. Um, now, one of the particular uh, cruelties of, of what happens to him is, is that he is, insofar as anybody is, um, in this situation, innocent. He is not all involved. And I want to talk about the title and what it, what it means, literally, and on various other levels. Sure. Uh, you know, he, he is not a part of a gang, which, uh, the way I understood it, the way it was told to me, um, it, it's almost like... Uh, shorthand it's a phrase people use almost to keep each other safe in in la you say hey what's up with that guy oh he's all involved which means so many things it means don't go near that guy unless you're really stupid mm -hmm. uh you know just just get away um or you're taking your life in your hands if you're mm -hmm. talking to somebody like that um what was interesting is i settled on the title fairly quickly mainly when i was uh, i did two and a half research two and a half years of research for the book Spent a lot of time with uh, former Latino gang members uh, talking to them. But I also interviewed nurses, firefighters, highway patrol officers, graffiti guys. Like just I really tried to keep it as broad as possible. Uh, and when I spoke to firefighters and I told them the title of the book, they looked at me like, oh, yeah, that's the most perfect title you could possibly <laughs> have for this book. And I said, why? They said, well, when buildings are on fire, we say they're involved. Really? And when there are 11,000 fires, over 11,000 to say that the city is all involved was actually, it made a lot of sense to the firefighters. Yeah, and there's also some sense in which um, even the people who are watching at home are involved. They're Absolutely. Are, they're implicated. Absolutely. Um, because LA is a city that historically riots. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, you, and you, you, the characters put it into context from like, you know, the 1940s, you know, through to, through, through to Watts and, and, and Rodney King. Yeah. 
um, and then you speculate about what might and what, what, what might happen after. Yeah, I mean, at the 30s, Zoot Suit riots, uh, Watch riots in 65, obviously the King riots in 92. Uh, I, I mentioned something about this on Twitter the other day, and an LA historian said, actually, there was also a massacre in 1871 of Chinese people in LA. Great. One more amazing thing uh, in this city. But yes, there's one character uh, who is, is somewhat familiar with this cycle because uh, you know people around him have spoken about what has happened. And he says, okay, well then, it, 30 years from now, it's going to be 2022, and it's going to be robots versus people. <laughs> He's sure That's of it. That's what it's going to be. He's sure of it. He's sure of it. Um, um, you, you said about the, the research that you did, two and a half years of research and the interviews with former gang members. I wonder, first of all, how you know that they were entirely former and where are they? Mm -hmm. And secondly, how did, your, you know, how did your white ass gain their trust? <laughs> and the, I'm using that from the, the glossary of gangster language at the back <laughs> of the book. Which I that is much. not in there, but yes, there is a glossary <laughs> in the back of the book. Uh, you know, well, how, I mean, what happens? How do you meet those kind of people? Where you know? Sure, you know, it all started. Uh, I moved to LA in 2008. I joined a street art crew there. Um, we, we just had gotten along. I'd been introduced to them, and and they said, "Hey, do you want to be part of the crew?" I said, "Absolutely," but I'm not a visual artist. I don't understand. And they said, "Well, we don't know either, but we we love what you write. We think you know, if you're part of the group, we could tell." bigger, broader, more interesting stories on walls at which I jumped at that. And then that was really the trap because as soon as I said yes, they said, okay, well now you're an intern. Right. So for 10 months all over LA, I basically carried paint. I cleaned up, I documented murals, but I was, I also ran interference uh, because we, uh, you know, were, uh, oh gosh, what's the word these days? Illegal. Oh. No, <laughs> we, we are actually completely legal. Uh, City of you LA are. funds our murals. So, okay. um, thank you. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we go to these places and, and we have a lot of work to do in a very short period of time. So, but yeah, man, you go to city terrace, you go to Linwood, you go to Lincoln Heights and people are interested and they want to talk to you mainly because, you know, art doesn't often, you know, find its way to some of these areas, right. um, which also had kind of the, the dual, uh, wonderful, uh, at, at least for me, the benefit of, of showing me parts of LA I never even knew existed. And as I kind of ran interference and kept people away from the artists and I talked to them about anything and everything, mm. um, I, I, there were definitely a subset of, of folks that I, I, I just got along with really well. And uh, it was later that I found out they were former gang members. I mean, nobody will just tell you that right off the bat. As far as how, this is the second part of your mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, I think by the time I didn't know I was writing this book at first. Um, but you were writing another book. Oh, that, yeah, no, but that went down in flames. Uh, I <laughs> it took a long time to go down in flames because it's 10 years since your last one. Yes, yes. Well, eight, eight years of slow slide, perhaps. Um, slow barn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very slow burn and then tremendous explosion. Uh, you know, I'd been, I'd been writing a book. I got completely lost in the research. It wasn't very good, and it was really, really long. It was at one point it was over 200,000 words Jesus. and I don't know how my agent even bothered to read it, to wow. be honest with you. you she is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, but I, I, it got to the point where I had to give up uh -huh. and, and that was extremely difficult for me. I, I had a bit of a breakdown and it was actually my grandmother. I was in Kansas at the time. My grandmother's was, I think nine, 90 years old. She's lived all over the world. And you know, I had gotten to this point where I, I would just psych myself up like, it's okay, it's gonna work, it's gonna, you know, if I just work hard, everything will be great. Mm. And she took one look at me and she said, well, how are you doing? And I 
gave her the spiel and she said, no, you're not. Right. And it just something broke inside of me. And it, it was after that, that I moved to LA and I honestly thought my career is over. I'm not going to write again. I'm not going to write anymore. I had plenty of you know, wonderful work colleagues who told me that my career was over as well. Uh, so, generous, generous writers. Well, no, the good news is I think it, that actually made me angry and that made me get back to writing perhaps a bit more quickly. Mm -hmm. But I, one of the things that was really useful to share once it became a project, once I was talking to these former gang members is I, I would sit down with them uh, and I would just simply say, look, you know, I, I don't want to know your stories. I don't want to know what you've done. I can't know what you've done. Uh, but you know, I want to know how did it smell? 11,000 fires in a city. What did it smell like? What, what were you hopeful for? What did you dream about? What did you want? And in some cases, why were you out on the streets? And one guy in particular told me, you know, he said, why was I out on the streets? Why do you want to know? I said, I'm just curious if you could tell me. He said, well, I hadn't eaten in a day and a half. All the restaurants were open and all the food was free. Wow. Did they really not tell you? There, you know, did the, I mean, I imagine I was thinking about Owen as this idea that of you as some mm. kind of, you know, confessor or a place where they could they could tell you stuff knowing that you're not going to take it if you just didn't want to know. My wife is a lawyer, oh. <laughs> and she she said, "Look, you know, you just plausible be liability. smart. You know, don't you d don't yeah." She used to work in the DA's office. Like, do not, don't listen to anything. But the good news is this, I think, you know, initially it was almost a barometer of who really wanted to be big mm -hmm. in their imagination and who was actually big. Because after a while, I, it, it was almost as if I got passed up a totem pole of sorts. And I was speaking to a, a guy that the second I walked in, into this room, he said, you're never going to know what I did ever. Were you scared and that's what I when wanted. you met these people? Uh, I was, when I met him, yes, absolutely. But I think one of the things that I always, I, I, I wanted to make clear uh, to these folks is that, uh, you know, I'm a survivor of violence. You know, when I was 17 years old, I was, I was hit in the face so hard it tore my nose out. I had two facial reconstructive surgeries. It took almost a year before I could properly smell and taste again. Uh, and oddly enough, I think, you know, because a lot of the, the folks I was sitting down with, I could see scars on arms, mm -hmm. on necks or skulls mm -hmm. or, you know, anywhere. And so I knew at some point I need to share the story about what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And I think it helped tremendously because people stopped seeing me as, you know, this, this, this interloper and started seeing me more as someone who just genuinely wanted to understand and genuinely wanted to write it as, as truthfully as I possibly could. And because I know violence from the inside out, that's really what goes right into the book. Mm. Um, I wonder um, what the, some of the people that you've spoken to think of it. Have they have have they read it? Because at the end, you say you know thank you to the people that you've interviewed, mm. and obviously you know they want to remain anonymous. But do you still have relationships with any of them? And have they have they told you what they think? I do. Uh, I probably about ninety percent of the folks I, I spoke to for mm. this book, I, I stay in touch with, and a few of them I stay in regular touch with. Right. Um, I think one of the most interesting things I ever heard from somebody. Um, after after he read the section that I just read to you, he said, it, oh, that was tough for me. I said, why was it tough for you? He said, it felt like being stabbed again. God. Which in a way is the most amazing thing a writer could hear. Mm. It was also quite terrible to hear at yeah, the same time. Completely grim. Um, there are lots and lots of moments of humor in the book. <laughs> 
you'll be pleased to hear. There, there are actually. There's many. There are hilarious stabbings <laughs> and firebombings, and it's just just one laugh right after another. You're um, not helping. But, uh, no, but, 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 but what I what I love is the kind of the little conversations that that, that happen between people, and they're sort of they, they feel very acutely observed, like when they're all mm. in the casino and somebody's reading and they're talking about the book that he's reading, and mm. it's 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 not all these sort of, sort of set pieces. It's just people kind of getting along, and I think that's mm. one of the interesting things, you know, about about the city and about about the book is that all these communities coexist but they don't interact they interact mm. within themselves very intensely they know everything sure. about one another you know what school they went to what they did who they made out you know people hold grudges for a very long time yeah. and then these other communities they don't interact at all like just just across across the road well and, and that i think is extremely true to los angeles at that time mm. you know it's been described as balkanized and it absolutely is you know you've got is wars do you think i think there's still elements of it but not on the same scale that it was in in the late 80s, early 90s. I, I think it's more to do now with, there was actually a really strong shift, mm -hmm. um, primarily between the Korean, Korean American community and the African Americans where a lot of that difficulty was. They made a very strong effort to communicate more after that. And I think that has helped significantly. And L LA in a lot of ways is in a much better place now than it was in 92. Mm. Uh, the book is very filmic and I'm, I'm assuming that it's been, that it's been optioned. Has it? Yes, you can tell us. I can't we won't quite tell, tell you yet. It's it's close. We're okay. really close, uh -huh. but the ink, the ink is not yet dry, so okay. I can't tell you. Speaking of ink, <laughs> uh, there, are, there, are, there are lots of tattoos in the book, and you, since I met you 10 years ago, have undergone a fairly significant transformation, and I was really interested um, mm. in what the tattoos mean and the fact that one of the scariest characters in the book is really scary because she doesn't have any. Yeah, um, that that I thought was that, that that I thought was mad. But I wanted to ask you about your tattoo um, and the story. You mean these, it. right? On my no, no, I mean the ones that we can't see because they're <laughs> everywhere. You know, no, don't shout strep. It's not, that, it's, not, <laughs> it's not that kind of event, right? It's the nice lady from Brighton Gin, which is lovely. <laughs> Thank you. No, but but I mean, it's kind of kind of extreme. I, I suppose. And it, did it so come about because of your involvement in the... I, I, yes, it did, because the um, one of the artists in, in Uglar, uh, which is the crew I'm a part of, is really one of the most fantastic tattoo artists on earth. He's one of the only non-Japanese nationals to be named to a Japanese tattooing family, and he was named last year. Uh, he does this incredible fusion of uh, Chicano single needle black and gray style and Japanese style. So I have a, technically in many ways a, a Japanese back piece, but it's, it's very much set in LA. It's telling a series of stories that he wants to tell the 108 heroes of Los Angeles. He's adapting a book from 1592 in China mm -hmm. that was adapted into Japanese tattoo tradition. And now he's taking it into LA tattoo tradition. So there's this lineage that goes on there. Uh, you know, but as far as why or how I did it yeah. and the transformative nature of it, I think honestly, having been through what I've been through as I, I deeply understand how life can change in a moment. I deeply understand how physical violence can come out of absolutely nowhere and ambush you and change your life. Uh, so for me, uh, tattoo was a far more meditative way of, of actually going toward the pain, saying, you know what, I know I'm going to experience pain in life, but I'd like to be able to say when and where, get something incredibly artful out of it. Mm. And, and in the meantime, you know, actually just be transformed. I mean, literally transformed. You cannot be the same person before a tattoo is after. It is just not possible. 
it, it changes. Well, this is a fairly hefty tattoo, which you may be offering glimpses of in the corner during the interval. <laughs> I'm, I, I can't say. Absolutely he not. He definitely would do that. <laughs> I've, I've seen bits of it. Oh my God. Um, anyway, uh, it's, it's a transformative experience that, that, that with the tattoo and also the, mm. the experience of the ink on the page. Nice link there. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it is an incredible book. I would take loads of questions, but I can't because we're really running out of time. We've been, we're, we're ahead of ourselves. But please join me in thanking Ryan Gattis. We'll be back after the interval. Thank you so much.